Yo, what's up? Welcome back. Uh, was up late last night to get this one watched. Rewatched it this morning. We are talking about The Mandalorian, Season 2, Episode 4, technically Chapter 12. You should already know, we're going through the episode, so we're going to be spoiling things like bad cheese left in the fridge too long. So, if you don't want to know anything more about the show, I suggest you get, you get. Uh, Carl Weathers had the uh, the direction on this episode, and it was really cool because this one had a little bit of his humor. You could see it. You know, there were aspects of it that were humorous, and then it got a little bit dark. Um, but I loved a lot of the callbacks. They weren't so much uh, bad fan service. They were just callbacks to in-universe references. And I love that. I love that because it gave you all the feel of a Star Wars uh, viewing experience in a television live-action episode. I've seen a lot of people call it a bridge episode, um, not a filler. And I do think that it is a bridge episode because it gives you pathways to a couple of other properties that are already there or storylines that are already there. So you're gonna see later on, we're gonna talk about a link to the sequel trilogy, and we're going to be talking about how this bridges the gap between episodes that we just saw and what's coming in the future. We start out on the Razor Crest, they're coming in. They know they're not gonna make it to Corvus, so they need to maybe have a stopover somewhere. And Baby Yoda is down in this chute, uh, messing with wires. You know, he's just a baby, even at 50 years old. He's cooing and, you know, doing his thing and holding positive-negative wires. And Mando is trying to get him to understand what he's saying. What I like about this is that it was kind of calling back to shots from the original trilogy where, you know, Han and Chewie would be working on the Falcon as it's limping along, trying to get it to work the right way so they can escape or get someplace. So Baby Yoda was playing uh, Mando's Chewie at this point, which I found kind of funny. The, the scene goes to Navarro. We are down where the covert was once at. I found that an interesting link, not necessarily a callback, but it was an interesting link um, that this this den, this hidden covert den, had become a sort of base for criminal operations. So they're they're making that that comparison. They're making that parallel between this hidden space being criminal or at least outside of the law. And that's kind of what the Mandalorians were. We also find that as he is a child of the Watch. Um, more of that comes into play. So, you know, I just found it interesting that that's the place that they went on Navarro when they could have had any other place highlighted. They highlighted that place, and they made sure that you knew so because the uh, the sigil was down. The classic Mandalorian uh, Mythosaur sigil was down, and you could see the shaded space where it was at and the wall was dirty. So that was interesting. And Aqualish gang, uh, or Walrus Man gang, 
they were uh, in there and you know, kind of divvying up the spoils. Uh, I didn't so much like the little ferret puppet. Like, I don't know what the purpose of it being there. It was kind of old school uh, actual puppetry. You know, it wasn't CGI. It was kind of this matted, dusty ferret. Um, and it later shows up in the episode. So maybe it's a it's a foil to Cara Dune's, you know, harder uh, militaristic persona. And this gave her something to be soft against, to play against. Maybe. I don't know. I just don't think it was necessary. Um, I, I think sometimes they shove puppets into uh, Star Wars properties to see if they can up the cute factor. And really, it didn't do anything for the story. But the Marshal, they say the Marshal's here. And I found that really interesting because another callback to a Marshal, to to this sort of Western law and order that they have going on in the show. This motif is uh, is going is going to be repeated, I believe. Um, that's just the feel of the show. It's the motif of the show. And we, we saw... You know the 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 marshal back on Tatooine, played by Timothy Oliphant, the uh, Cobb Vanth uh, character, also being called the marshal. And actually, I think his episode was called the marshal. Anyway, that was an interesting callback. I think to call her the marshal, but also to to set the tone that she and Grief Karga were now the authorities on this uh, outpost world. Uh, you get a lot of that because we're on the outer rim. We're operating on the outer rim. Um, we're not in, in the core worlds. And so you're getting this Western trope all over the place because these are unsettled or newly settled territories. Um, they don't, not even the empire could settle them. Grief Karga says later in the uh, episode. And so I, the the show is holding true now. I hope they continue to keep it a little bit tongue in cheek and not dive all the way into it because we still are watching a space show. Um, I made the reference in the last review that um, it's very much like Firefly for me. It's very much like the Serenity uh, and Firefly universe um, by Joss Whedon. And they did a great job there of barely referencing this Western motif, this Western in space uh, kind of motif and the tropes that go with it. And they did a good job of not taking you out, not pulling you out of the fact that you were in space. Um, that was part of the narrative. And so I hope that uh, The Mandalorian continues to do that. Is keep us in space. We love the frontier aspect, but let's not turn it into a full-on spaghetti western in space. Like, keep us in space. We got a little bit of a Lando callback. So they, they're coming in. They're flying in. Uh, the Razor Crest comes in, lands. You can see the doors kind of shimmying and shaking and rattling as he's coming in. They, they obviously come out to meet him because they saw him on the scanners. And I think it's, uh, it was kind of cool. It was subtle. I don't know if many people caught it, but Grief Karga says, uh, I'll get my best people on it. Now, Lando said that the last time that there was a double cross, he was in on it. Lando was in on the double cross when he got his best people on it last time. Um, this time, I don't think Grief Karga was in on it. I think he was surprised, and you can see it later in the episode when he covers for the Mando 
uh, when the Razor Crest is brought up. Uh, but he got his best people on it. And we get a little shady look that clues us into something with that species that's working on it with uh, the the human mechanic. So we know something's going down. We know something's going to happen. We find that out later. You see the marketplaces bustling and doing well. And then they get to the place where Moff Gideon had sieged them inside what was a bar or at least it was the headquarters of the previous client for Mando, uh, the Imperial-linked uh, uh, money man there. And uh, even Mando is saying, wow, this place is still standing. And you go inside and you find out it's a school, which is kind of cool. Younglings are back in the universe. Other than baby Yoda, the child, we don't see a lot of younglings except for in, I believe it was the episode uh, where they went to that planet and there was the village that uh, Mando almost found a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And there were younglings there who gathered around the child. It's a, kind of a similar thing here where they go into this school and there's a group of younglings. We don't see kids in the universe a lot. And I think that's really cool to show, to widen the world and to show the family aspect. Like, okay, these are kids. There's obviously families. There's a marketplace. It gave you feelings of Batu, you know, uh, walking through this marketplace out uh, at Galaxy's Edge. Um, I think that that's really cool that you bring, they're bringing in a wider scope to show that there are regular people out in this wild world, out in the Outer Rim. So I think that's pretty cool. This is where we get a cool callback in the kids' hair. They they have um, hairstyles. There's another one that's similar to Leia um, in uh, Return of the Jedi when she was rocking the braid around her head. Um, I think that's kind of cool too, to, to again, widen the world and show that um, these people are known. These are well-known people. These are well-known styles. The fact that hairstyles and things traverse the universe, and this little girl has hair like a girl who would become the hero later on, I think that's really interesting. It's a visual link to things. It's visual fan service. But it's not spoken about. It's not uh, given any special treatment. It's just saying that this used to be a hairstyle. And Jakku is even further out in the outer rim. So just like style goes now, from the core worlds, styles, styles trickle out. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, there's going to be a girl who's going to be rocking that hairstyle. That's really interesting to me. And I think that it's a, it's a good piece of fan service. Um, in that it's world building in a not so blatant way. I dig that. Another thing, the droid in that scene actually mispronounces the name of the maelstrom that we saw in Solo. So again, there's all these kind of like spidering threads that go out, but they're not super obvious. They're not in your face. Um, the droid, the, uh, the protocol droid that is now the teacher, calls the maelstrom the Akadizi maelstrom. Now, I don't know if that was just a mispronunciation or if that was Favreau and Filoni 
setting the canon on how you should pronounce that because in Solo, it's called the Akades Maelstrom. Now, Akadisi and Akades would be spelled the same way, or maybe it's just different pronunciations based on what part of the universe you're in. In the core, where they were coming from to make the Kessel Run, maybe Lando and, uh, and Solo are calling it the Akades Maelstrom. Who knows? But they called it the Akadisi Maelstrom in this one, which I found really interesting. But you have to listen for it. That's an Easter egg. Akadisi Maelstrom, Akadis Maelstrom. You make the choice. All right, Baby Yoda's being bad. This, this is only... Actually, this is the first time in this season that we see uh, the baby using um, force powers. And in a somewhat dark side way. Using force powers to steal somebody's cookies. That's dark side business. Give me them cookies. And then ate them right in dude's face. Crunch, say something. <laughs> I found that kind of funny. It didn't really push the story forward any. And it might. Maybe it does. It was just kind of this thing showing the kid being the kid. And there's a lot of those scenes this season of the kid just being the kid. There's more to come in this episode. But using force powers to snag somebody's cookies. It makes perfect sense. You would have to teach a kid that their special powers are not to be used that way. So this makes sense. And now Mando is back to work. Um, they leave the child. He reluctantly leaves the child at school. Which is a good thing. That's a dad thing. He's on a quest, but I think he's also attached to the kid's safety. Uh, we meet up with Grief and Kara in their office, their sort of magistrate's office. He's a respectable businessman now. Very much a callback to Lando. He's very much a callback to Lando on Bespin and Cloud City in this one. Mithra is now out of Carbonite and working for Grief Karga paying off his debt so we find out that the bounty on the Mithra was most likely put there by Grief Karga so when he's off on this world and I think that that was the first world he revisited I don't know if that was confirmed or not but when he just crashed where the spiders were that ice world we think was the same one that he picked up the Mithril on and we found out that the Mithril was running from that bounty and he stole some money from Grief Karga. So now he's unthawed and working that debt off for Grief Karga. Again, little callbacks to bind the world together. This is the connective tissue that may be unimportant to story, but it is very important to world building. So that's a, a note to keep in mind on these so-called bridge or filler episodes. A lot of times, this is the tie that binds, even though it is not the main thread. They put him on mission again. And the mission is, they have an Imperial outpost that's a, a sort of forward staging post, they think. And they're going to go, they have to blow it up to make this world safe and get rid of the Empire for good. Now they can become a true trading post. And uh, they got to go deal with this. So they hop in the speeder. It's kind of a callback to Luke's speeder. Very much is like him... Uh, tooling back and forth to uh, Moss Eisley spaceport in his speeder. Uh, it's kind of cool to see. Again, connective tissue, connective tissue, 
reminders that you're in this world and this world has um, common manufacturing. They've got corporations that make certain things. These things are spread throughout the galaxy. So of course you're going to see them. Okay, so they're in here. They're, they're, they're in the assault on, well, it's not really an assault. It's kind of a covert mission. Yeah. So they're on the mission to get into this base. Um, it's built on some kind of lava flow. And so they basically, once they turn the, the, the coolant lines off, the place is going to blow sky high. Great. Let's get in here, do that, get in, get out. It's never going to work that way, you know. They're in the base. They've infiltrated the base. They find out that there's a few more troops there. It's not an empty base. Uh, but Mando takes care of them up top, lets everybody in. They go in, they go up. Um, at that point down at the lift, Cardoon says the the... I guess, curse du jour of the outer rim, she says Dank Farrick again. And uh, I'm like, okay, is that just the MF of the outer rim? Like, does everyone say that? Because we've seen Mando say it, we've seen uh, Bo-Katan and her crew say it, and uh, now we have Cara Dune, who doesn't know those others, but she says it. So maybe Dank Farrick is really, really raw, and you shouldn't be saying that. And so they get inside, and this is what I love. When you get Imperial hallway action, you know it's going down. So they're in the Imperial hallway, they're walking the hallways, the music starts to ramp up, you know that some action is coming, this is the sort of set piece of the show, of this episode. Um... And it frames off nicely, you know, the camera angles and, and as they're, as the, the slanted sort of triangular uh, hallways that they're walking down frame, they have rhythm. I love the Imperial hallways. You just know things are going down if you're in Imperial hallways. Um, there's a callback to Obi-Wan's airwalk on the, uh, the walkway when he, uh, Mithril goes over to start shutting down the, uh, the lava chamber uh, shutting down the coolant lines in the lava chamber uh he calls it out though he goes there's there's no railing on this thing you know <laughs> there's no guardrail and uh i think we're all thinking it but that's what makes it sort of trepidatious like uh oh, is he gonna make it then they come upon uh a station that has bodies like bodies in tanks and they're misshapen deformed obviously being studied and when they come in the guys freak out and you see them loading it onto a disc he's like get it loaded get it get it saved but when they come in he's like screw it destroy it and they start shooting the console they get dealt with real quickly and everybody's like what the hell hey, yo, hey, what the hell what is this there's some people who are saying and i mean they're, they're going really deep cut on it where they're saying uh one of them looked like Snoke. Now this is many, many years before Snoke. But they say one of them looked like Snoke. Um, but it is obviously deformed. You can see sort of the cranial crack. Um, they're obviously being experimented on. So I don't know if they're splicing genes, uh, splicing DNA, whatnot. But on the console, Mithril goes and he finds a recording. And it's the doctor from episode one, season one. He's saying that uh, 
they didn't have enough blood. The experiments were on volunteers. So I don't know. It's the it's the empire. Do you really think somebody volunteered to be in this? But they call them volunteers. And then he mentions M blood. Are they bringing midichlorians back into the explanation of the force and of powers? So they're thinking that this blood, rich with midichlorians, being transfused into another donor would somehow allow them to harbor force powers. But their body, like a blood type, like type O, type A, type B, um, type M, midichlorian blood would have to be accepted. And he's saying that the donors are rejecting. The donor bodies are rejecting this blood and they don't have enough blood because they could only take so much from the child before killing it. So when people were thinking that uh, Baby Yoda was a clone, and this goes back to the Ugnaught saying, I don't think this is a clone. This is organic. It's too ugly to, to not be organic. Um, I think this proves that point because they're taking this blood. So Baby Yoda wasn't being cloned as much as it was the donor source for M-Blood. Crazy. This is where I was saying earlier that this connective tissue extends further out to the sequel trilogy because if it's a long-standing empire program to find the emperor a donor body or a cloned body to be resurrected in, then this has implications all the way out to the sequel trilogy. So again, it's a bridge episode, a very long bridge episode. Kind of crazy to think that even back then, Moff Gideon may have been in charge of an Imperial program specifically for Operation Cinder when the Emperor knew that he was going to burn it all down and try to come back a certain way. That's kind of wild that this episode would have implications all the way out into the sequel trilogy. Very, very interesting. It also makes me wonder, Snoke eventually did get created. Snoke eventually became a thing. So, is Baby Yoda going to die? Is Baby Yoda going to be captured? Are they going to drain him of his in-blood and, and eventually carry that program on later? And later in the episode, toward the end, you hear someone, uh, one of the officers, mention in this new era. First Order, perhaps? Stands to reason. Here's something funny for you. You all remember the cup from Game of Thrones? Starbucks is now canon in Westeros. We have another moment like that. Check it out. <laughs> if you look at 1854 on the timeline, if you jump and pause to 1854 exactly, and you look in the corner, just below Grief Karga's outstretched blaster-holding arm, you will see 
a member of the crew in t-shirt jeans and a watch t-shirt and jeans are now canon in star wars <laughs> canon right there in view but just only a bit is uh, a member of the crew in t-shirt and jeans all right so let we jump into the action again they're blasting they're going down these imperial hallways lots of good action they've got to get they're deep in the base now and they've got to get out you know mando does his thing with the jetpack that's what we've seen in trailers uh for the show before it started where he jumps off of this cliff and he lights up his jetpack Pretty cool. I like that. I like that. I like the sound of the jetpack. I like that he's using his hand controls so you see how he's turning it on and off. And um, he's off and gone because they know that now Gideon is still alive. And they know that they need the child. They've got to get more blood from him. So he's got to get ghost. He's got to get out of here. So he jets off. Earlier, they referenced uh, a transport that they say is going to go uh, get vaporized with the rest of this base when it goes up. And Mithral says, what a waste. Keep in mind, they always reference things that they're going to come back to. And they do. They actually have to go back and get it because they need a way to get out of there. Um, they take this thing off the cliff. It was their only choice. So it's kind of this comical moment. Again, one of the lighter moments that starts to call back a lot of chase scene references in Star Wars, in universe. Um, a lot of that starts to happen here. They dive off the cliff. They're like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Obviously they're going to do it. Kind of calls back to solo, kind of calls back to the original trilogy. Um, you know, it ain't like Dustin crops boy, you know, these kind of things, these chase scene callbacks, maybe even all the way to the prequel when, uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan are in the speeder and they dive down through Coruscant traffic or when um, Obi-Wan is going over to Geonosis and he's being chased by uh, Boba and Jango uh, on the Slave One, my favorite ship in all Star Wars, by the way. Anyway, they dive off this cliff, they're down into the canyon and they're on a chase. Uh, it kind of calls back to prequel Tatooine pod racing also. So they're going through and the speeder bikes come up, okay? Nice callback, nice Star Wars reference. Even the camera angles. They get that undershot camera angle of the speeder bike and the gun shooting very much indoor, very much the forest chase on the speeder bikes with Luke Leia and the forest troopers. Um, that was really cool. I really did like that. Again, that connective tissue, drawing the, the universe in tight. I love that kind of stuff. It's it's fan service, but not fan service-y, if that makes any sense. Along with the indoor callback, there's another Spielberg, um, Lucasfilm callback with Indiana Jones. As they're, as they're racing along in this canyon, uh, Kara is driving the, the transport, and a speeder bike pulls up next to her. And just like in the tank with Indy and his dad in The Last Crusade, they smash against that wall when Indy is hooked on to the tank. And he's about to get crushed and they try to put the tank into the rocks. Chase scene tropes. They're coming up all over the place here. 
Now, the speeder bikes get dealt with and they think they're home free when, nope, Moff Gideon-style TIE fighters, like, he must have had the research and development arm of the Empire because he's got a lot of toys that the regular Empire did not know about. Empire proper did not have. Well, Gideon had him. So these folding wing Outlander TIE fighters are popping up, the wings unfold, and they're on the chase. And it's a cool scene because they're they're in this, this valley, they're down in the canyon, and the TIE fighters have to stay up above. They venture down in when it gets a little wider. Um, and Karga is on the guns. It's, again, another trope of Star Wars. Somebody's driving in the chase scene. Yo, get back there and man the guns. I'm on it. Boom. He jumps back. He's a terrible shot. He's not getting anything. Cardoon looks back and she's like, what's going on back there? Uh, it's that repeat of, are you going to shoot? Are you, are you going to do anything back there? Um, Ray says it to Finn when they're flying and he's trying to get the hang of the Falcon's gun turret. And she's she asks him, are you going to shoot anything? You come back here and try it. Same exchange between Cardoon and Grief Karga connective tissue he finally does hit something tie fighter rolls in smashes up they've got three tie fighters left to fight they're almost home free these must be the quickest mechanics on the planet because the razor crest is back in action running perfectly like i need them to work on my car like fellas can you get it done minus the tracking device you're about to put on it he zooms in, boom, 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 saves the day. He's already got the baby with him. So baby Yoda is strapped into his seat, still holding the stolen space macrones. Dark side energy. They're on a chase, kind of, uh, you know, Iron Man style, John Favreau. Up into the clouds, stall the engines, boom, shoots one TIE fighter, floats back down, boom, throttles the engine, zoom, gets right into him, does the twirly bird thing that Tony Stark did to avoid fire, shoots right through him, bang, play the heroic music. Done. Razor Crest radios in, um, they repeat another line of or another western trope of great job let me buy you a drink same thing that Bo-Katan just said to him when they were on Trask he's like nah I got to go man we got to get ahead of, of Moff Gideon uh you know we got too much heat we out we'll see y'all later peace be good you know but that's when you find out that the tracking device had been planted by shady mechanic number two so the Imperial officer says, you know, you'll be rewarded in the new era. Thank you. Makes her walk and talk over to Moff Gideon. Moff Gideon, slow turn, slow burn. We finally get Giancarlo Esposito on camera, in frame, looking all smoldering. And uh, he says, good, we'll be ready. And when he's referencing we'll be ready, they pull back. And he's got what a lot of people are thinking are um, dark troopers. A lot of some are some are saying they're dark troopers. They're they're android troopers. Obviously, they're bolted to the wall. They're not organic. They're mechanical. 
Um, they kind of look like the Death Troopers from Rogue One. They, they're not as slender and tall. And those guys were actually organic. Maybe even necrotic in a way, but organic nonetheless. These are um, mechanical in some way. Okay, Gideon is going to have this sort of uh, high-tech R&D army. He's already shown it. He's already proved it um, with with his TIE fighters, his, out, his Outlander TIE fighters, um, the cloning and all these things. And now he's got a mechanical trooper army. Like, this guy was definitely in charge of the R&D division of the Empire, at least of late. Are the Mandalorians, as they start to accumulate and you start to see more of them, is Bo-Katan going to come back into play as she's going after this Darksaber and she's recruiting more and more Mandalorians to her cause? Well, these were the Jedi fighters. Their, their Beskar armor was made for battle. This is a battle race. Is this going to be the link that draws the watch... Death Watch back into the fold to fight with other Mandalorians against Moff Gideon and his mechanical army, his his research and development army that he's fighting against. Um, is this going to put the Mandalorians on the side of remaining Jedi or Force users like Ahsoka Tano, who's been mentioned in live action? So uh, this... This is an interesting link. Again, a lot of people wanted to see Ahsoka, maybe get a glimpse of her. We know the ship is fixed up. We know they're going to make it. We know that they're tracking him now, headed toward Ahsoka Tano, and he's got an army. She's a badass force user. Okay, we're headed there. We're headed to conflict. And so that was intriguing to me to see this mechanical army and know that we've just seen a technologically advanced super warrior race of commandos. Commandos. <laughs> Take that one. Use it. You're welcome. Shouts out to uh, my Star Wars crew. Shouts out to my man Adam Turner. We're probably going to be doing some analysis together, some rewatches. Shouts out to Rex and Around, as always. They are my uh, my anchor in this Star Wars stuff, this positive uh, community. I love it. Shouts out to uh, Star Wars Theory and Den of Nerds, who I watched last night and uh, kind of got a little bit of links and info from. Props to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, have fun with this episode. We'll, uh, we'll be back with you. And thanks for watching. All right, peace.